Hello and welcome to the ANF podcast with me, Al Coates, and him. Actually, Scott's not here. Scott's away on his holidays, as per usual. So, I'm putting an introduction onto this episode without him and we'll let it speak for itself. But before Christmas, we managed to speak to a post-adoption social worker, Nick. We've always struggled to get practicing social workers to come on the podcast, and there's a whole host of reasons around that. But Nick was really open and honest and willing to come on, uh, but wanted to reiterate that the views expressed here are personal only. We chat through a huge range of issues that are facing and pressing on contemporary adoption, and Nick was absolutely fantastic, open and honest, and cast a light into some of the stuff that we always kind of talk around and look at. Now, as always, if you have experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch. You can get in touch through the Facebook page, Twitter, or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. So today we're really, uh, really privileged to speak to a post-adoption support worker, which is quite unusual for us. Uh, so I'd like to introduce uh, our guest, uh, Nick Burke. Hello, Nick. Hi. Um, so Nick, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the work you do? And then we're going to get into it and we're going to ask you some questions because we're really, as we keep saying, we've never really had a post-adoption support worker on the podcast, especially one who's practicing now. So fire away. Tell us about yourself. Okay, so um, I am a social worker who has had um, 15 years of experience in child protection and post-adoption. Um, and I think when I came to post-adoption social work, I had a very different idea of what adoption was, of what the support might be. Um, and I think, you know, I, I like a lot of people, I kind of saw adoption as a, as a fresh start. Um, and I thought that, you know, um, a bit of support and perhaps some therapy for the child um, would be kind of what people would need. And then within their new loving family, all would be well. Like that, that was my kind of view of things. And I think that's changed quite a lot from just learning from people that I've had the privilege to support in, in this area. So can I ask you um, why? I mean, it, they're not natural bedfellows. Well, maybe they are um, child protection to post adoption support. How? Did that link happen? What sort of led you to that team? Uh, that's there's, it's quite a problematic story because um, when I was working in child protection, um, I became interested in uh, a an approach to attachment, which I now really hate. Um, which is uh, right. so there's there's this there's this kind of subgroup of of uh, attachment um, practitioners who kind of see disorganized attachment as uh, somehow like um a predictor of child abuse so it's it's, right. it's very problematic so they're trying to read backwards from a child's behavior to kind of pin that with parents um so it's very very parent blaming and yeah um, but it's like the holy grail for child protection social workers because they think wow i've got this way of like understanding i can see what this child's doing it must be the parents. So that kind of child protection culture, that very problematic thing got me interested in digging deeper into attachment theory right? and understanding more about like 
how like it's actually really messy and dynamic and things change and and relationships change and it's not clean it's not the case that you that it's just not simple at all um yeah but i was interested in kind of therapeutic stuff around that and it wasn't really matching with working in child protection social work where it's very yeah. process driven and you just have to um uh it's 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 about like following a process and things yeah. like that and there's not much scope for kind of working with people in detail so i wanted to work with people in in more detail and 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 that kind of thing that's why i moved uh, into post adoption and i guess post adoption um is an area where that whole attachment issue is quite well known isn't it it's quite a it's sort of part, well it used to be i don't think it maybe Five, six, seven, ten years ago, it was like it was the bread and butter of post adoption support, wasn't it? If you understood attachment, you would, you know, it was, it was very much the parlance of families. But maybe we've moved on to trauma now. But that's for another discussion. So you, you join a post adoption support team, right? Tell me, how does that go down? Um, I was very surprised, like in the field, because, um, and I mean, post adoption support is. It's very different depending on where you live. There's a bit of a postcode lottery. I mean, yeah. that might be changing now that more um, local authorities are part of regionalized agencies. So there may be some more kind of standardized things coming in, but uh -huh. it can be from anything from one person who um, does a bit of post-adoption support on the side and is really an adoption social worker re recruiting adopters to like a supportive multidisciplinary team and everything in between. So um, I think my experiences were social workers coming into that work um, and where I work, it's very hands-on and, and we, we do uh, have supportive relationships with people over time. Um, but what were the tools they had available to them? They were the child protection tools based on understanding the difficulties yeah. of the child based on what the parents are doing, which so that had the same dilemma essentially that I had in child protection that the the kind of frameworks to explain what was happening were still kind of very parent blaming and not understanding the whole messy thing in context. Yeah. Um, so I had a bit of a culture shock really moving there and um, moving into the field and trying to make sense of this. So was that just you? I mean, just you, because I can imagine coming from a child protection, you, you look forward and think, well, I'm moving into post-option support but actually the tools and equipment you know the old adage you know um is it maslow's hammer it, if you've well, the only tool you've got is a hammer every problem is a nail and so was it unusual as well because I, I often think the difference between working with um i suppose child protection is predominantly vulnerable families you know in sense of socioeconomic um in all of the challenges that they may face as families that's not necessarily present in Mm. adoptive parents is that is there a sort of a, a total gear shift as you move into working with these a different type of adult as well yeah but some of that actually opens up opportunities because um it can be the case that you've got people really determined to do therapeutic parenting and perhaps finding that that on its own isn't enough either um yeah. but like you can be alongside them in that struggle. I think in child protection, there are barriers to that. Like that yeah. is more difficult. If you're saying I'm here because 
this is a compulsory child protection plan and I want to work alongside you, like why would they trust that? So it's more often in post-adoption support that people can trust that you're there to try to work with them and be alongside them. Yeah. And that should be happening more in child protection as well. That was a, yeah, that's a, a big difference. I think there's space as well to be more creative because we're slightly out of the limelight. Um, so we can do more different creative things with families. So I, I can like go on bike rides with young people to get to know them before I start to ask them lots of detailed questions. Um, or I can um, use some therapy techniques with somebody, you know, alongside my kind of when I'm visiting um, to just kind of try to connect. Whereas in child protection, it just, there wasn't the space for that kind of thing. Hmm. I, I'm going to stop asking questions for a second because Scott is... <gasps> Shock horror, because I've not <laughs> even said I'm here. So anybody listening, do apologise. I'm here. I've been here all along, but I'll get so excited Sorry. when one of his own comes on the podcast. Which is <laughs> one of rare. my own. <laughs> <laughs> So um, while Al's, Al's had lots of interesting questions, I want to just rewind back a little bit because you mentioned when you opened there about when you joined, uh, sorry, when you when you first got into adoption support and how, I, I just wanted to ask you, so did you, I'm not saying that, I'm not putting words in your mouth or anything, but your impressions of what the job was going to be like versus the, what the actual job is, what, what, I mean, it's a, I'm assuming it's quite a spectrum. Yeah, I mean, like there's like there's every um, different kind of of um, weird and wonderful uh, adoptive parent that we might work with. There's also every different weird, kind of weird and wonderful work. Well, I'm weird, so <laughs> <laughs> there's every kind of weird and weird and wonderful um, social worker. Yeah, and so you will get very institutionalized, um, narrow focused social workers who. Um, you know, and then you'll get um, you'll get a whole range. Yeah. So I, and was, I think I saw that and didn't expect to. Yeah. So what's your impression of like adoption? Um, you briefly touched on it, but was it like that? Still the traditional kind of adoption narrative that you had in your head when you first joined, because we're talking fifteen years ago. So that's what, well, fifteen years of being a social worker. I think, yeah. So um, <laughs> you know, it's maybe half and half child protection and post adoption. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that a, a lot the people I really learned from was is young people. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing I wanted to say. So um, there's an idea, you know. Um, I'm a non-binary social worker, and there's an idea um, that you know medicalizes gender and says that um, you know gender dysmorphia is like an individual medical thing rather than something that's wrong with the whole of society. Um, and I think you could extend that in the same way to like adoption, like understanding adoption and life story. Um, people like see a child and they say like, well, um, this they pathologize a child or a family and say they're not. Whereas actually often the young people that I've worked with have been really good at coming, at asking big questions or trying to get to grips with big questions. Yeah. And it's the people around them who are panicking and not knowing how to do this and not knowing how to hold that emotionally or how to um, uh, allow them to experience something and do some emotional and therapeutic work around it 
and and contain that and be with them um, and that really affects things like um uh sibling relationships meeting up with um uh birth siblings and and the people around them thinking how is this going to work how are they going to manage it and uh i think listening to young to young people now young people young adopted people um who are at much younger ages starting to kind of explore their identity and, and challenge things um has been a massive eye-opener for me because mm. we we last year we, we ran a conference about looking specifically at identity and i think it was um I think we were really blown away by the complexity. I mean, we know it's a complicated time being a teenager um, and identity formation, but just the the layers that then is added by children's pre sort of pre care experience, uh, care experience, and adoption experience, and the the complicated narratives of maintaining links just mean that what is sort of universally accepted as a difficult time, you know, working out who you are, is then these huge other issues are sort of poured into that bucket um, and so is that an issue that you see a lot of families looking for support around yeah definitely definitely and sometimes it's um i mean it's the the, the kind of classic thing so um transitioning to secondary school yeah. um starting to explore things but that often like now comes with getting really social media literate starting to kind of and i think there's a, a really problematic and traditional view of social media um that basically sees it as like um entirely through the lens of safety and terrified about the possibility of kind of exploring wider family and understanding kind of that kind of stuff and i think young people are like way ahead of us with this we need to listen to them and listen to what they're telling us they need and find helpful, safe ways for them to, to explore that. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, this, we're starting to, there's some slow change, like starting to learn some of that, but it's, um, it's, I mean, the adoption system is quite, quite kind of set in its way sometimes. So <laughs> like Speak some clearly. of that slow progress. Just say what you really think. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, um. yeah, um, and and it's it's interesting because you bring up the the kind of um, gender and sexuality thing as well. Um, with COVID, um, and I I certainly have personal experience of this. I mean, you know, as a gay man, I'm quite open to, well, I'm very open to everything. Um, but I've learned so much from my son, my sixteen now sixteen year old. Um, as a result of COVID, identity was a really big thing because obviously not mixing with his peers, um, and you know, not be having a sense of who he was, you know, all that sort of stuff through the lockdowns, not being able to mix with his friends. <clears throat> um and we have had a massive a number of conversations about um gender and gender fluidity and stuff like that. I've learned like loads, but he's also learned loads from us because we've 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 gone on training courses, which I know might sound stupid, but it's it's to make sure that we are aware, as you know, of the jobs that we do, to make sure that we are welcoming, that we're open and stuff. How do how do you feel that's affected and impacted? Because I know you've done some work on COVID nineteen, haven't you, on, on social in social work? But how do you think that that has impacted things like identity and 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 coming out of the other side now? Is yeah, I, I can see you nodding. It's so really, yeah, it's really difficult because, I mean, <laughs> I, 
it's, it's difficult because it's hard to see this without... Um, there, there was a narrative coming from the Department for Education through the whole thing um, about kind of the poor children. Um, they need to go back to school. And we saw a really mm. polarised thing in post-adoption support. So um, some neurodiver neurodiverse children um, who found school really challenging, actually that lockdown one was like a, a calm space where they could yes. recover spend yeah, yeah. time with their with their um parents and like all yeah. that kind of nurturing stuff was possible um and then but then you so it became polarized so then you also had um young people especially child to parent violence um like much more intense support needs and both of those connect to like what you what you need to do as a teenager, which is like trying to define yourself as an individual separate to your parents, and then you're just locked in this situation. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, um, there were big challenges around around COVID, um, and um, it's funny because in co as social workers, like in COVID, everyone else disappeared. Like we yeah. were still there supporting families, but kind of. Ev like a lot of the other professionals kind of stopped kind of visiting mm. and things like that. Um, but I think there was a missed opportunity to um, work differently and promote like um, collective approaches. It was still individual casework. And I think across, across adoption, that, that's one lesson for me, like we need to do much more kind of community and collective um, and group work, social work, um, and rather than kind of case-based using the systems of child protection, social work. Yeah, because mm. I mean, our local CAMs, obviously we use our local CAMs here. It's a little bit different to the UK because we're in Ireland, so they're actually, our local CAMs is good. <laughs> um, but the uh, clinical psychologist who we see, um, she mm. actually ex uh, shared with us that they've had an increase in the number of children and young people who are coming forward um, as uh identifying as trans or non-binary as a result of the lockdowns and stuff and i i guess we're not going to know for a few years as to how that's going to go i mean is are you finding the same kind of yeah, thing def or? definitely definitely and um like there's definitely a kind of social gender dysmorphia around the child often yeah um where people don't know well where the child knows how to express this and nobody else knows how to make sense of it yeah. um uh so yes um but i think also there are it's quite a toxic atmosphere and i'm not saying like the professionals i work with are great yeah. Um, but it's more like what's coming from the government and the idea that like, um, you know, you, you can't support social transition for prepubertal children and yeah. um, in order to uh, access hormones, you have to now sign up to be part of a clinical trial. Like these are big kind of, it's culture war. It's actually culture yeah. war, but it's, but it's messing with people's lives in quite big ways. So um, I think that, uh, being able to listen to and understand young people and be alongside them is the role of the social worker in that situation. And there's a lot of advocacy involved in that yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, young people are amazing. Anyone who writes off young people, like you're totally wrong. They're, they're, they're challenging everything and they're, they're fantastic. Which, they which, are, they're just yeah, I mean, 
and to be fair, they're not too different to you know, like the kind of the LGBT uh, LGB kind of thing from the seventies and eighties that were challenging. It's just a different way now, isn't it? And also, um, the kind of people are becoming more aware of it. And I guess Al and I have never really ventured into that arena. I think there's a certain mm. element of fear for us anyway of getting it wrong rather than discussing it it's not about not discussing it it's about getting it wrong you know so um and you are the f- first self-identifying non-binary person that we've had in the podcast so which yeah <laughs> you know um yeah so we might we might get it wrong if we do we hold our hands up you know we we we're very much about language so um the the correct language um so just yeah. putting that in the middle but, of there but I think that, um, I mean, reflecting on my own experience as an adoptive parent, um, I, in many regards, this wasn't on my agenda. Um, the My children's, um, I mean, that's maybe because I'm a straight white man, right? So yeah, let's just, <laughs> I am a straight white man. Probably. Um, yeah. yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> uh but what I think, what my children have taken me on a really interesting journey because my experience is, you know, my job as a dad is just to accept them for who they are, full stop, and love them, support them, keep them safe, put a few guardrails in. Um, but what I realised was that there was a, that their, and I guess if we go back to the identity, is that their, their identity formation is so much more complex than my experience and my peers' children's experience um and i think it's an issue that can often be quite that we don't necessarily address in adoption preparation because i think that our children are going to struggle with their identity even if they go around the houses and come back to say i'm a straight white oh yeah i'm a straight white girl <laughs> that doesn't mean there won't be a struggle on the way mm. um and so do you think that the preparation oh I've, I've found a question in there it's excellent um <laughs> phew um so do you think that we're preparing adopters appropriately for actually what is coming my view is that so it's quite easy to say we need more of this in the training but my view is that um we need to have more we need to offer regular check-ins like through the um kind of life cycle of adoptive family life like some people might not take that up but i think it's very difficult to um kind of cover a lot of things in training when the focus that people have is very different to what they meant then might start to open up and have so and that applies to um to gender that also applies to um like uh family time and um connecting with uh birth siblings and things like that like those those things are not they need they need to be on the radar in in the initial training because you need to you i think we should be saying to people you are adopting a family not just a child like you're adopting a whole world that is connected to this child um but also i think that needs to be revisited later with people because it's really difficult i mean yeah no, I mean, I think that that's probably what we hear expressed a lot is that, you know, you, you are focused on a four-year-old that's coming, yeah. Um, but they will be 14 <laughs> and the issues Absolutely. will have changed palpably and, and you're not, not necessarily in a position to absorb that. Do you, yeah. um, and I, I'm, I can tell you being careful not to kind of 
you know, because you are a practicing social worker, so you you know you you've got an employer, you've got a registration, so you've got to be you know got to be careful. It's only prudent and wise. Um, have you done your registration? It's today. Just check. I have, yes. Yeah, <laughs> right, <clear>, just think. <laughs> Get your CPD in. Okay, it was a great podcast, but I lost my registration. Yeah. Um, oh, it's great to know I don't have to do these things. I can just sit here and not do. Them. Oh, it's a nightmare. Um, so, can I ask you? Um, you, when we were talking before, we, you mentioned sort of your views on adoption itself have sort of shifted from that, you know, pre coming into. Um, into the role but actually the broader you you mentioned um you know the the inquiry into the ethics and values of um of adoption which i think we've never had a social work perspective on that we've we are so often we hear the voices of adopted people adopters professionals but actually you as a social worker what's your views on adoption yeah, yeah. i mean that i mean that <laughs> um the, the british association of social work human rights uh, inquiry into the role of social work in adoption so social workers need to yeah. need it yeah and it's very accessible and i think you know um actually anybody at any stage of an adoption journey however they're affected by adoption can read and access that um it's not a like link a, in the a, notes <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean it blew my mind what blew my mind about it was bringing together because the method they used was to bring together all groups affected by adoption and try to do that you know um adopted yeah. adults young people um parents birth parents professionals judges social workers like and that kind of bringing together um totally blew my mind i think it's really important um my, some formative experiences yeah i've talked i've talked like things at work have been formative how young people have kind of um uh being able to tackle some of their identity stuff before any of the adults around them can even start to grapple with it. Um, but also a big formative experience of mine has been um, like coming across that stuff and coming across like Amanda Borman and Open Nest and her work yeah. and some conf conferences that have in practice kind of tried to do that. Also um, Social Work Action Network did something where they brought together um group different people affected by adoption and, and did that i think that stuff has been that's that's the future for me yeah. of adoption um when we think about like where some parents are now like unilaterally stopping letterbox contact because they find it difficult to manage manage emotionally which i completely understand because it's really difficult to manage emotionally yeah um to a perspective that that validates like different perspectives in that wider circle of people that you have that you've bought into by stepping into adoption like that's a massive that's a big deal that's a big changer for how how we could think about this and i think anybody who's kind of going through a um a assessment and preparation and matching and things like that in terms of adoption um that is the thing how do all of these different how are all of these different groups of people who've been affected by this what are their perspectives? And now you can access that really well. Yeah. Like there's lots of podcasts on your podcast of uh, adults, um, adult adoptees talking about their experiences, um, uh, birth parents, like it, it's really immediately available. And I think going beyond um, some defensiveness that might be, you know, because people don't necessarily have 
clean, easy to digest views, do they? You know, some of that is challenging. Going beyond that and trying to think like, what is that experience and how can I connect with and validate those people who are connected to me? I think that's really important. Mm. And it's interesting what you're saying there, because I think that there was, a, I mean, Al and I's generation as adoptive parents were the generation of this kind of um, contemporary adoption where um, it, it was a care system. Um, it was effects of the care system. Sorry, it was a product of the care system that were putting our children to us for adoption. And the government started to realise that it actually changed from the traditional kind of uh, you know, rel- relinquishment, and I use my fingers in there because I know not everybody use, likes using that word. Um, so therefore, we were the f- kind of first generation of adoptive parents who were parenting children, and the government realised this and needed to do something about it. But now they are grown up; they can speak for themselves. Mm. So, but just going back to that, I mean, do you think that parents still have? You know, what what is your what is your impression of adoptive parents? Are they the <gasps> middle class uh uh you know um you know people who can have children or or is it a different you know are there different people these days yeah i mean uh definitely like there's a, there's a big transformation <laughs> yeah. i think maybe i can't remember the statistics it's something like one in ten english like adoptive parents are lgbt i don't know because i think they only gather stats on like whether they're same sex couples or something like that yeah so it's like a distorted picture yeah but i think like from adoption support like um we work with lots of lgbtq plus families um and uh so the, that picture's changing um but i think there are negatives as well so there's this fantastic thing there's access to therapy now via the adoption support fund which is great mm-hmm. but it comes with like an ideological like big society approach that's privatized it And that means that a lot of the expertise that used to sit in CAMs and in local authority adoption teams and um, in other services about adoption um, has moved into the private sector. Um, And so when people face like really big struggles, like maybe with forensic CAMs or things like that, like they're hitting those like really difficult um clinical thresholds for intervention by the nhs and the professionals there don't have any adoption knowledge anymore yeah um so that's a like i've i'm really pro the access to therapy i think the asf has done brilliant things but um i think it now there needs to be a transition to trying to think about how you could fund that how could you mainstream that like how could you mainstream access to therapy and make it sustainable and Mm-hmm. Um, how could you how can you mainstream schools knowing about adoption instead of having some private therapists who have some good knowledge who in some cases are involved and able to advise the school like why isn't that a universal thing mm. so i think that's the, the question is, that we've been asking for the last six years of the dfe well, about the sustainability of the money yeah not the fund the money that goes into it you know how can how can we make mm. sure that it's there forever and it continues to grow because well we've had yeah i was gonna say we've had mark always on mark always was one of the architects of the adoption support fund and he's really open honest and said this was a you know to get the to get money into the hands of the right people to make the change quickly it was set up in a way that made it this sort of um this external fund 
He said, but the intention and aspiration had always been to kind of, for the local authorities to raise their game and to, um, and some of the best local, I mean, I was, you know, so I was at the DFE when they were doing the pilots and some of the local authorities were doing amazing work. What they, they used the fund to train all of their social care staff in therapy. Mm. Um, so that was mean, you know, it was teaching people to fish rather than giving them nets. It was just, it was, but I'm sure, I think we've, it's just become part of the structure now. There's, it doesn't seem like there's, well, will there's, it, a, will it there's, continue? Also, there's a difficulty with that because those local authorities that did that stuck the neck out and took a massive risk because they yeah. didn't know whether it was going to continue and they could train people based on a, a business model because it is like yeah. a, a, it's mag, it's a business um, that they would then be able to um, access ASF funds to pay for the therapy that they've trained people to do. Yeah, and every, in every kind of cycle, that's been completely uncertain. Is that going to happen? So um, that's a, always a difficult decision. So I think a lot of a lot of regional adoption agencies like try to hedge their bets somewhere in between. Maybe try to train some people, and it's difficult to like get a fully resourced, multidisciplinary, trauma informed, therapeutic based service when you don't know what's going to happen. Like. Mm. in the next year so yeah do you you ever find yourself as a in your post-adoption support worker social worker sorry um sort of going into situations and thinking i'm not sure we can we just don't have the resources because often i mean we a lot of people contact us as us and kind of say i'm struggling with this can you give us can you point us some people just feeling that they just don't they're not getting what they need from post-adoption support. What are the what's in your toolbox? I mean, this is a difficult one because I think the most the families that have struggled the most are maybe the most identifiable. So, like, if I speak to some of their experiences, that's um, yeah, that's difficult to do. So, um, and I wouldn't want to disrespect them by doing that. Um, we would, but what I would say, yeah, no, of course, of course. What I would say is that um, that this connects to me to this idea of an, a drain of expertise from universal services because um what can happen is you can have you can access some therapy from asf for a period of time the difficulty is yeah. like that doesn't touch the sides yeah. even with brilliant therapists the difficulties are way beyond like require a massive intensive multidisciplinary response and then that expertise is lacking so all the time in post-adoption support, we're faced with really complex, difficult situations. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, like people are at sea. So, you know, I've got like basic therapy skills, um, an understanding of DDP. I've got, um, you know, a, quite a reasonably good knowledge of attachment. Um, and I've got like, uh, a kind of grounding in kind of non-judgmental yeah. humanistic type approaches. Um, and that's kind of what I work with. Um, and uh, like, I, so we have to, we're kind of thinking on our feet, like I adapt yeah. and try to work with it creatively. But I think um, a lot of the time people are like, I could have a, 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 an amazing skill set, but you, you can't substitute for, kind of run down services. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So <clears throat> that's quite a that's quite a bleak end, isn't it? That comment, that yes. question. Well, let me let me change things up a little bit because <laughs> all right, you seem, you seem like the sort of person we can ask almost anything of. Um, if you don't want to ask this question, we'll edit it out. <laughs> 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 but, um, Hypothetically. So, yeah, well, you know, we could edit it out. We'll see. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you've been uh, listening, Lenny, but we um, we discussed uh, a podcast by New Family Social the other month around um, ethical non-monogamy. And I just wondered, as a social worker, um, because I've spoken, to, I, I did a conversation, I don't know when, when is that coming out, actually, Al? Just out of interest. Uh, might be a couple of weeks. Uh, but, oh, okay. that, but we'll need that. The way it schedules, that doesn't work like that. Yes, I know. Okay, it so... might already be out. It will be okay, out by the right. time yeah. this. It will be out. It will be out. Um, so as I've, I've, we were contacted by uh, American adoptive parents who are in an ethical non-monogamous setup, but I just wondered. I've done a conversation with them. Really interesting conversation. Like, I mean, even Al's mind was just like blown. Um, but I just wondered, as a social worker, what you're kind of approach to that would be what you know what's your thoughts what's so your... i i happily don't do <laughs> i don't assess adopters which yeah. is great because i don't understand <laughs> i don't understand how to do that <laughs> like it's completely like it seems like you, yeah i don't know like um, so for, for, but i think that in adoption in adoption support mm. um sense like um I think uh, people might panic around that and not yeah. know what mm. to do. And I think for a lot of things, like people expect um, expect you. So if if you're LGBTQ plus, in some way, they expect you to like fit a framework that they know about and understand yeah. in a different way. So um, like, so you have to be in a in a relationship that somehow somehow maps onto a heteronormative relationship yeah you know so so i think that people would face difficulties and i think they would face like inappropriate safeguarding stuff yeah. and i think they would face difficult reactions from schools and things like that mm. um, yeah. and i think that probably the response they'd get in post-adoption support would be patchy yeah. um i think i i hope that like they would be able to be open about that with me and i'd be able to support them yeah. um with whatever their difficulty is yeah i think it's a really interesting point to, uh, because i mean i imagine and i, I didn't I, I reflection is an amazing thing isn't it so i've spoken to this couple we discussed the podcast from new family social and on reflection i think that my panic would be if i was if i was them would be this um labeling the blame as that for the reason for something going wrong and yeah. i think yeah. that you know that would be a i i, I personally believe that that would be a, a a typical way of being able to go well it's because of this um yeah so i think anybody outing themselves in that way would like you say the response would be patchy i think it would really need somebody who's really open to kind of considering you know like we've talked about genders and different kind of family um, setups and all this sort of stuff to be able to really understand that and think beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and assessing social workers need to understand why somebody would be, would feel that way about disclosing that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I'm loving this conversation because I can literally see every one of us thinking about every word it'd be said. We're really being we're like, like, is this word okay? Is this word okay? I know it's, um, it's funny though because it actually it really is a great opportunity to be open and honest, but yeah. also just you know just to make sure that we're talking about it in a respectful way because I don't want yeah. anybody who is in a an ethical non monogamous relationship to think they're doing anything wrong because you know I I I don't see it that way. Um, no, I mean, Al and I have had a, a discussion. It's not that Al thought there was anything wrong with it. It's just it was new to you. You didn't think it, it, it was. It wasn't something that you'd been aware of. I live very sheltered life. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I haven't. Then is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, exactly that. I mean, I I raised it in the the office. We were having it. It was like you when you leave in the office at five o'clock, and I said, "Oh, by the way." Like throwing a Were hand you grenade. Line after you dropped that bomb, <laughs> it was, so. yeah. yeah. It was literally like throwing a hand grenade down the office. It was like people scattering and everyone wanted to get their opinion in. Um, but I think that it, it, I think it's good to challenge your, it, if you can challenge what does it take to raise a child? Mm. That, the, the, what, what do children need? And and it's, it's made me really question all of those things in a really positive way. And, um, you know, um, but um, I think you mentioned there, you know, obviously you're not an assessing social worker, so, you know, you can speak, you can speak plainly. And um, I think that, that th those relationships that you, that assessing social workers develop with their applicants are just so critical. And, you know, we, we've had a few recently where people, where it's just not gelled or people have not gone through. And, yeah. Um, and that's, that's on traditional things that may have gone wrong in relationships yeah. and stuff like that so you yeah. know if you think outside of that box with a social worker who may not have experienced this before it's going to be a really yeah. you know that's yeah. that's going to compound the issues with that relationship even further isn't it yeah Ooh. yeah because if, if their framework is attachment then they're automatically assuming that you need to have this type of relationship yeah. and they're not like you'd think, right, if you have a number of um, valuable relationships that are kind of um, healthy and reciprocal, and then that would be really great for a child because they'd be exposed to lots of like um, different uh, yeah. figures who are important in their life or, or somebody could just close down and like be just within two walls, two people, like how claustrophobic. So you could yeah. see like a massive benefit from this potentially, but um, I think a lot of work across the adoption system to kind of understand it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like we broke ground tonight. We've spoken well, about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a fascinating book um, about attachment and culture and about how attachment is manifest in different cultures. I've got, I can't remember it. I think it is called as simply as that attachment across culture. Um, and it raises the issue of, you know, in some cultures, you know, for a man to have, Two wives, three wives, four wives. No one bats an eyelid. Um, uh, now I'm not suggesting that you know the whole thing about wives and husbands and all of that kind of thing and you know property and all of that. But I do think that I think it's you know that we need to question what does yeah. it take to raise the child and not just go oh mum and a dad. Yeah, yeah. We'd be. It's not 1950. <laughs> no, especially because you've just said mum and a dad. You know. Well, that's my, said on purpose. my children have two dads and a mum and another dad so you know it's like there's this kind of yeah it's just you know and i i saw well, something as well what was it um i think it was last week about you know 
again, that language thing as well, you know, how we refer to things, how we speak about things, the words we use, um, you know, um, when we talk about the children that are in my um, my family, you know, um, it was actually the conference, and I'm I'm going to mention actually it was um, uh, somebody at the conference actually put in the in the in the chat about we shouldn't be referring to them as our children, and I read it and I thought, okay, so let me think about that before I get on the keyboard and go. But actually, I think it's only healthy that you know a child feels that sense of belonging and and they are my children i know they're somebody else's children as well but they're also my children and you in know law. i always i sorry yeah what did you say what well, we're, we're legally responsible for them so. <laughs> no i love my you kids know. thank you very much um, i know but you have but, to pay the bills when they break things in well, exactly. yeah i know, I know. <laughs> but, but also the other part of that is that you know i've maybe never met all of their um, biological relations uh, relatives but i do feel that they're connected to our family so as a mm -hmm. family it's not just how you know uh, the five of us living our life there's a much larger kind of wide circle of family out there we might not see them we might not have met them we might not know them but they're still part of that family and our children are their children as well so language is a really important thing i agree but sometimes that sense of belonging for the children they need they do need that as well uh, i'm really conscious that we started off an interview and it just turned into me and scott talking um but <laughs> i'm afraid that's just how it goes really and um, sorry i was just it, trying to make a point you know no, it's fine. I, I, nobody I'm objected to it either so i must have been I, talking some I, sense I, somewhere i don't know Maybe. it's fine it's fine we don't have to apologize it's our podcast and um, <laughs> nick Nick, really appreciate you coming on, and I feel like we Definitely. could unpick loads, loads more, yeah. more. And I think that we might get you back on because if you're I, willing I to was, come on, you know what? It's freaky because I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, if you don't lose your job, um, <laughs> this, uh, or your registration, your registration, <laughs> then everything will be fine. It'll be fine. But, yeah. So, thank you so much for coming on, Nick. I, I guess the last question would be: Is there anything that you were really hoping that you'd like yeah. to get a chance to talk about, and we just didn't ask the right questions? I think the only thing I haven't talked about is another can of worms, but the whole kind of um, child welfare inequalities it. thing. So, like um, the 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 fact that um, you know there's there's these massive welfare inequalities in the UK, and if you're living in poverty, you're much more likely to have child protection intervention and child removal, mm. um, and face those kind of responses, um, and we're possibly facing more of that with more another bout of austerity um that i just think that it's important to situate the work we do in that so if we're talking about kind of uh thinking about the connections with birth family like we have to appreciate that the experience of kind of sharp end child protection for families in poverty is what it is and um we need to like problematize that and challenge that and also like validate their family perspectives um but that's the kind of there's a whole thing to to talk about there which we haven't probably got yeah. time to talk about well i mean i'd love to get you back and unpick mm. that but also in the context of what we we thinking about doing conference about foster care and we think about foster care allegations it was something we we're thinking about but i would really love to do a podcast about allegations child protection adoption because i think that 
like you say that the a lot of families like too many families find themselves caught up in child protection adoptive families and i think you'd have a very you'd be able to offer a unique perspective so would you come back on and talk about that yeah yeah happily, yeah we try not to lose your registration for you we'd keep it anonymous <laughs> and we talk in broad terms not specifics um but that that would be really good because i think that is an issue for a lot of families and it's yeah. terrifying for a lot of families isn't it so well it good. is yeah you're right and you know we've we've both got personal kind of experience of that ours is yeah. a bit more extreme about just extreme yeah. than mine but we'll we'll cover that in a future podcast with yeah. nick so. <laughs> yeah so nick that's a date you're coming back whether you yeah. like it or not great great excellent so thank you very much nick absolutely wonderful hope you have a lovely night and uh, we'll speak to you soon thanks yeah, nick. thanks very much bye Bye.